We're back in the courtroom of current events of another episode of Peter's Proffer, hitting a topic unlike any other topic we've hit before. Um, it's a very interesting organization we're going to dive into today. If you have any questions or you want to hear us uh, talk about any topic on the podcast, hit us up on social media at Tragos Law. If you want to send us an email, PeterTragos at GreekLaw.com. Thanks for listening in. Today's topic is on a group called the Innocence Project. I've got George Tragos here with me today. He has been involved in the Innocence Project for some time and just recently had a case resolved, so we figured it'd be a good time to talk about it. It's in the news. It was in the St. Pete Times on the front page. So, Dad, let's start out by just talking a little bit about what the Innocence Project is. Well, the Innocence Project was started back in 1993 by a guy named Barry Sheck. Barry Sheck, a lot of your listeners may remember, is the lawyer on the O.J. Simpson case that did all the DNA evidence, all the cross-examination, basically tore up the DNA evidence because no one knew more about it than he did. And so he realized that there were a lot of people out there, innocent people, convicted of crimes, and with this DNA evidence, because it's absolutely unrefutable, that DNA evidence can be what makes people innocent, can be what determines they're innocent, even though they're convicted with eyewitness testimony. And he started this project in order to have a place where convicts and defendants can write letters and ask for their cases to be reviewed. So did he start it before or after the OJ trial? Let's see. I think he started it before the OJ trial, but he was the recognized expert. He's a professor at Cordoza Law School. Okay. And uh, tell me a little bit about the first case that the Innocence Project ever took on. The first case was Marion Coakley. He was a Bronx man who'd been convicted of rape and robbery. When they did the DNA testing, it came back inconclusive, which means it couldn't tell whether or not it was or was not this man. However, when the full investigation occurred, it turns out it wasn't this man. He was found innocent for other reasons, but that was the first time DNA testing was used to exonerate or an attempt to exonerate someone. Okay, when you say he was found innocent for other reasons, was that something that the Innocence Project looked into yes. and got done? Yes, they Okay, did. so they don't just do it for DNA evidence. They do it for any sorts of irrefutable evidence they feel like you have if you've been wrongfully convicted. That is correct. Okay, so the point of the Innocence Project is to help people who usually can't afford lawyers, because if you can afford a lawyer, you would just hire a private lawyer. The Innocence Project doesn't cost money, right? Correct. So it's somebody that has been convicted. They feel like they've been wrongfully convicted. And so they write letters to the Innocence Project in hopes that they would pick up their case for free and do everything they can to get their conviction overturned or get them released from jail or prove their innocence some way. Right. But DNA is obviously the the biggest part of their practice because when you have someone and you have actually proven that this is not their DNA, there's really no reason, no way to get around it. Okay. So two questions. How do... uh, how does the state attorney's office or the U.S. attorney's office, how do they feel about the Innocence Project? Well, you know, that's a tough question. The state attorney's offices, a lot of them, were really opposed to DNA testing after someone's conviction. Some of this testing happens just recently, the one we did, 17 years after the conviction. And they say conviction should be final. But, of course, we say, how can you say that? How can you have an innocent man in prison? Uh, if he's innocent, I don't care if 
proving he's innocent occurs 20 years afterwards. He's still innocent. You shouldn't keep him there for the rest of his life. There are actually some state attorney's offices that said they didn't care, that they would rather he just stay there, even though he's innocent. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And I think that that's an important distinction in law school or for young lawyers or people going to law school or wanting to be lawyers. You're supposed to fight for justice and whatever the just result is, not just to win. And that's a big key for state attorneys is they get they they are always trying to win. But the good state attorneys are looking for the correct and the just result to happen in a case, even if it's somebody, you know, being let off or let go because there is evidence proving that they are innocent. And I don't want to make it sound like all state attorneys were like that. The majority of state attorneys want people who are innocent to be released. That's the small minority, and it was just the outrageous minority. The fact that they would say that just shocked me. Okay, so you're saying the small minority don't want them released. Correct. The, the large majority is in agreement that if there is some kind of irrefutable evidence that these people need to be released. Oh, absolutely. When we were doing the, when we were writing the rule for DNA, that rule came up before the rules committee that I was chairman of. And there were assistant state attorneys there that strongly supported having a rule that allowed DNA testing at any time. Okay, and so how do private lawyers get involved in the Innocence Project? Um, are they on a list, like uh, they're, they're always willing to volunteer, or is it once in a while they get sent a letter, something that strikes their fancy? How do private lawyers get involved in the process? Well, when the Innocence Project has a case in a particular jurisdiction, they look for lawyers that they believe will be able to handle the complexities of the case, and they call those lawyers up directly and ask them to volunteer. I don't know of any lawyer that's ever turned down an opportunity to volunteer to prove that someone who is wrongly convicted should be innocent and released from jail. Oh, so it's kind of like a a big deal for a lawyer to even get chosen to be on the Innocence Project. Normally, yes, because they're lawyers that people have heard of. Okay, I, I didn't know that. I would think it's, you know, you think of pro bono work, and usually a lot of lawyers don't want to do it, but this is something that it's high profile, it's a it's a big deal. You're saving somebody's life, basically, so most lawyers are interested in working on it. Well, lawyers, aside from what people think, have a good heart, and they don't want an innocent person to be in jail, and they're willing to really work hard to get an innocent person freed. Okay, so why don't you tell me a little about a little bit about how DNA evidence has evolved and the help that the um, Innocence Project has done in in moving forward DNA evidence and how it's used in criminal cases. You now, the first time that DNA evidence really was ever used was 1984. And it was in England, and it was to profile, uh, genetically profile individuals and, and create kind of a fingerprint. And that was the idea. And then in 1993, when Barry Sheck uh, took it over and took the uh, Innocent Project and, and created it, we had a DNA test that maybe excluded a lot of people, but not everybody. Now the DNA testing has gotten so sophisticated that it's, it's like one in 50 million or 50 billion people uh, that would have the same DNA. And frankly, even in twins, you don't get the same DNA. So it's become an absolute positive. If someone's DNA does match, then you can either exclude or include that person in the crime. And that's exactly what they're shooting for with the DNA. Okay, so we'll move on to the next section, which is an interesting one, and we're going to talk about the selection process. Can, um, I, can I go back for a second when I was just, we were just talking sure. about the DNA? That's why when you hear about DNA evidence maybe have been tested 20 years ago and they retest it today, it's because 20 years ago you didn't have the same sophistication. So that's why it's an evolving process. And there may even be a time when DNA evidence gets even better and they retest some other things. Things have changed a lot. Before you had to have a lot of blood. Now just a drop. Now someone's cigarette 
has enough DNA on it so that they can test it, or a fingernail, or on clothing. Things like that didn't exist before, but they do now. Okay, so moving to the selection process. I know that everybody that calls here says they didn't do it. I know that everybody sitting in jail says they're innocent. I know that everybody's got a reason why something happened to them, and most of the time they don't think that they should have been convicted. They think that they were wrongfully convicted. So how does the Innocence Project actually select which cases to take, as I'm sure they get a slew of letters and calls every year? Well, the first thing they look at is they take a look at whether or not the identity of the perpetrator is an issue. If that is an issue, who actually did the crime, then that's the first criteria. Sometimes that's not an issue. Sometimes people admit, yeah, I did the crime. So, but it, but it really is no crime because this and this are self-defense, things like that. But if actually the perpetrator is an issue, that's the first step. So you're saying anybody that pled not guilty by reason of insanity or reason of entrapment or things like that, that, you know, we have all the time or you see on these TV shows, they're not actually disputing that they committed the crime. Right. If there's no dispute, then there's no reason to do anything. So testing. it has to be, it, it wasn't me, not I did it, but it was self-defense. That wouldn't be an innocence project type of case. Right. And the, in was, it wasn't me sometimes occurs after a confession because it will go, we'll talk about that, that some confessions are wrongly obtained. Which I, I don't think anybody would be shocked to hear that. Right. Okay. So um, the statistics say that they've gotten over 50,000 letters. That seems low to me for something that's been around for 25 years. I'm sure they've gotten thousands and thousands of calls and emails and things like that on top of it, but they've gotten a ton of interest in their services. How do they actually go about selecting which cases they take? You've gone through the first criteria. All right. The second criteria is their biological evidence. There has to be something to test. Uh, Is there a cigarette that was never tested before? Is there clothing? Is there blood? Is there at least a little drop of blood to test? So the next criteria is, do we have biological evidence that can be tested? So will they only take a case that has some kind of biological evidence? No, but that's the majority of cases. Those are the easy ones to just so determine. So if, if a witness resurfaces from somewhere or something like that, they may consider it too, I assume. They might consider it, but you got to realize that that one's a hard one for judges to reverse because, you know, people you know, recant and they say, well, maybe they were threatened, maybe they were paid off. A lot of reasons, but you can't dispute the DNA evidence. Why don't you talk about real quick, really briefly, because I don't want to get too into it. What is the standard on a criminal appeal on what you have to actually prove to get a conviction overturned? Because I think that probably goes into why they need DNA evidence. There are a lot of standards, but in this type of case, it's generally a substantial likelihood by clear and convincing evidence that a miscarriage of justice occurred. Okay, so when you deal with these types of cases and they're looking for DNA evidence and they're looking for the perpetrator to be in dispute, what else do they look for before they select one of these cases? Well, of course, the biological evidence we talked about. And then the biological evidence, number one, has to have been preserved. And it had to be preserved in such a way where the new testing can be conducted on that evidence. So if we've got those three elements, and of course, if it came back that it wasn't this uh, perpetrator or the one that was convicted, then it's worth pursuing. Then they obtain the transcript of the trial. And they review the transcript, they review all the evidence, and then they see, is it worth pursuing? If they think it is worth pursuing, then a lot of times they'll go to private lawyers and they'll say, hey, review this and give us your opinion. Tell us whether or not this is worth pursuing. The private lawyer will then review the transcripts, report back 
uh, to the Innocence Project and say, yes, this is a case worth pursuing. And then the Innocence Project, because they have to pay for the cost of the DNA testing, they have to pay for the cost of other depositions, they have to pay for the cost of investigators. Even though the lawyer does his work for free, they still have to pay these out-of-pocket costs and expenses. So before they do that, they want to make sure that they have a, a shot at it. Okay, so it's a pretty rigorous process to go through before your case gets selected. Um, do you know how many get selected every year? No, I, I do know that in in Florida, they had two exonerations in the last four months, but they hadn't had one for two years before that. Okay, and I know there are also other things that can push you to the front of the uh, the front of the list. I know that Stephen Stephen Avery case, the Making a Murder documentary on Netflix. I know the Wisconsin Innocence Project picked that case up, and I'm sure it didn't have to go through all the same processes that everybody else went through because they already knew most of the things about that case just from the documentary and the research that the the makers of the documentary went through. Okay, so it gets to a private lawyer. We have some experience in this. You've had a couple Innocence Project cases in the past. Why don't you talk about what happened because there were two different outcomes. Why don't you talk about the two cases that they sent to you to review? Well, first, we've got a case that was just a review where they sent it to me to see whether or not there was a chance. And I looked at it. Uh, I said there was a chance. I sent it back to the Innocence Project, but they were unsuccessful in getting any of the DNA to come back that this guy was not the perpetrator. So they really didn't go any further with it. So, so when it comes to you, it's just basically a trial transcript and some information about the case. And you say, if the, ev- if the DNA evidence proves it wasn't him, then you've got a good chance? Right. That's that's one scenario. Okay. So that was the first one. Okay. So in that scenario, all you do as the private lawyer is you get the information on the case and you send them back and say, if you get good DNA evidence results, then we can pursue this case. Yes. Okay. So you could have in that situation say, even with some good DNA evidence, it, there's nobody else that could have done it, but this guy, has that ever come up? Do you think that's like a potential possibility? Well, anything's possible. Anything's possible. Okay. So basically your review at that point is just get me more evidence to see if we can do it. Right. Is there a chance? Okay. Is what I'm telling him. Is it worth spending the money? Okay. And so the first one, they found out the DNA evidence didn't help this guy. So there was no case there. Right. Okay. What about the second one? The second one. Which now, was recent. Yeah. The second one, they contacted me after they did the work on the DNA. Uh, they reviewed it and they decided themselves that DNA was worth pursuing. Because there are lawyers on staff at the Innocence Project. Right. Okay. And, and this was the, and it's been the paper, this is the Dwight DuBose case. So what happened was the victim's fingernail clippings, uh, they were preserved, as well as a glove that was underneath the victim. There was testing done on those fingernails. Keep in mind, those fingernails were preserved 17 years after the murder, and that's when the testing was done. Well, let's let's start. Let's set the stage a little bit more. So it was a murder conviction. Dwight yes. Dubose was convicted of murdering this victim. Correct. Okay, and this victim had DNA evidence under his fingernails. That's correct. But let's also keep in mind there were four eyewitnesses saying that Dwight Dubose actually committed the murder. So they do the fingernail clippings, and they find out that there were people identified with those fingernail clippings, but none of them were Dwight DuBose. Okay, and also as for criteria number one, Dwight DuBose said it wasn't him that, that committed the murder. Absolutely. Okay, and then criteria number two is there was biological evidence that could be tested. And then criteria number three, they tested it, and it actually turned out to not have any of his DNA. And the reason that's important is because the fingernails, I guess, of the victim scratched 
whoever it was that committed the murder, and that's how they would get the DNA under their fingernails. That would be the theory of the defense. Right. When this trial happened in 2001, we didn't have any of this DNA evidence. It was just the four eyewitness testimony, and this was a, a situation where we had a drug deal going on, and it was a drug deal and a drug debt that went bad. There were a lot of people standing around. It was a lot of commotion, and it would have been very difficult, we think, for anybody to really identify who did what. But these four witnesses did say that Dwight did it. Now we have evidence that shows that somebody else was there, somebody else was involved in the fight. And therefore, these other people could be the perpetrators. And this creates, again, it's not like a rape case where if you find it in the semen and you, know, you find the semen, you test it, ah, he's not the guy who did the rape. This is a situation where we're creating reasonable doubt by the fact that we have a, a theory now that can be supported by the DNA evidence that we have reasonable doubt as to who committed the murder. So there's all sorts of outcomes that can happen from an Innocence Project case. One being you check the DNA, it doesn't help you, the guy's guilty, he's staying in jail. Uh, another one being um, in a rape case, you tested the semen, it wasn't the defendant's, so he's actually innocent, you've proven he's innocent, and he gets off and gets exonerated, and then something kind of in the middle like Dwight Dubose's case, where you create reasonable doubt, and what happens to be the outcome of that type of case? Well, what you do on that case, after I read all the transcripts, and I went through the evidence in that case, I determined that Dwight could still have been convicted of first-degree murder and still gotten a life sentence because you still had the eyewitnesses. And we went out and interviewed the eyewitnesses. And they were still, some of them were solid, some of them were a little shaky. So we figured, you know, Dwight, do you want to take a chance and go to trial and get another life sentence? Or do you want to see if there's a deal that can be made? So you potentially could redo the trial? Correct. With this DNA evidence? Well, in fact, we had an order for a new trial. Okay. And then what was the outcome instead of a new trial? Well, we went to the state attorney's office. We said, look, he's been in jail for 17 years. I think that's long enough. Do you want to take a chance on total exoneration or can you drop it down to murder two, give him time served, and he'd walk out of the jail that day and go home to his mother? Okay, so, and, and, and that's what happened in this case. That's what happened. The state attorney's office dropped it to a second degree murder, gave him time served so he could immediately be released. Okay. And Dwight took it because he didn't want to take the chance. Okay, so he ends up getting out even though he still has a murder two conviction on his record. Yes, he had other, some other prior felonies, so it didn't really hurt his job chances. Okay, so um, when you talk about the outcomes of a, of a case, this is one that you know is kind of like hedging your bets, kind of cut it somewhere down the middle where he gets to get out of, uh, out of prison, he gets his charges reduced, but he doesn't walk away an innocent quote-unquote man. That's correct. Okay, so the Innocence Project still did its job in getting somebody out of prison when there was some kind of reasonable doubt that he actually committed the crime. Right. Okay, let's move on and talk about some of the statistics in the uh, Innocence Project. Well, um, 37 states have, been, have had exonerations won because of the Innocence Project. 20 of the 356 people who have been exonerated were on death row. So 20 people on death row have been exonerated by this DNA evidence. And there's 386 total? 356 total. 356 total, okay. The average length of time served by someone who's exonerated was 14 years. That means 4,876 years people served who were innocent. The average age of uh, conviction was 26. The average age they were let out, 42. 40 of the 356 pled guilty, yet they did not commit the crime. 70% of those innocent people that were convicted 
were eyewitness misidentification. 42% of the cases were cross-racial misidentifications. 32% of the cases involved multiple misidentification of the same person. That means more than one person identified the wrong person. 29% involved false confessions. And 49% of the false confessions were people under 21. So that shows you that those younger people didn't have the maturity and were able to be influenced. And that's like the making a murderer case. It was somebody under 21 who provided a false confession. Right. And then with the, the racial background is interesting of the 356 exonerees. 220 were African Americans, 106 were Caucasians, 27 Latinos, and two Asians. So it shows that these exonerations exonerated a disproportionate amount when you look at the racial profile. And you look at, I tell you, the part that got me was 70% were misidentifications of eyewitnesses. Well, I, what, I, what it makes me think of is these are the cases that ended up, most of them, having hard DNA evidence that proved the truth, right? Absolutely, vast majority of them. So when you think about how many have no DNA evidence, it's got to be similar percentages. Well, I mean, that's, it's, uh, well that's why they, the, the, the social scientists say eyewitness identification is like the worst way to convict somebody. And there's 70% of these, so if you think 70% or even a little bit less, let's say half the cases ha are involving eyewitness misidentification of, of the, the defendants in a case. I mean, that's crazy to think about oh yeah it is so that's why all these different kinds of testing that we can find that's just kind of scientific and hard black or white evidence as opposed to maybe they did see him maybe they didn't maybe this person was coerced maybe they were tricked whatever it could be that this stuff actually does happen and oh, we have sure. scientific evidence to prove it 29 percent false confessions that's crazy or how about people pleading guilty well we know that happens i mean you yeah. know that happens yeah, you plead guilty and you're innocent well that's because you're afraid of whatever the maximum sentence is right. so you just plead to something you didn't do in order to make sure you limit the amount of time you're going to be in prison i mean it's it's a crazy system to think about that that this high of a percentage of wrongful convictions occur well and, and that's why you know our system although it's not perfect uh, we know it's not perfect, but there are ways of improving the system. And there is an appellate process. I mean, the fact that you can even go back and try to do stuff like this is is an important part of the system that, that we have. Um, okay, so we'll finish the, the podcast by just giving people um, a little insight as to where the Innocence Project is in Florida, what they can do if they want to submit you know, a case, or who they can call to kind of talk about it if they are interested in submitting a case to the Innocence Project. The Innocent Project is located in Tallahassee, Florida, actually at Florida State University. The address is 11... Well, it's because we just continue to fight for the people that need fighting. That's right. FSU. Go Nulls. Uh, it's at 1100 East Park Avenue, Tallahassee, Florida, 32301, and their phone number is 850-561-6767. All right. So that was a little uh, history lesson on the Innocence Project. Hope everybody enjoyed it, and we'll be with you guys next time. 